Well, I would like to wish you, of course, a happy Independence Day. It is not very often that we have church actually on the 4th of July, and so uh, it's, it's a privilege for me uh, in, in a lot of ways to look out and see so much red. Appreciate you all wearing that today. I actually wore blue just so, you know, it wouldn't be too obvious, but but anyway, great to see you this morning, and, and uh, of course you know that that our country stands on uh, the values that we celebrate, uh, independence and the like, and I was reading this past week about the American Revolution, and the American Revolution, of course, was fought over 200 years ago and by people that are now really just sort of legends and myths and fables, it seems. But the American Revolution began really in a, in a formal sense at the First Continental Congress, when the delegates from the various colonies met in 1774 and decided we need to do something in an official way about what's going on. Dissatisfied, of course, and disillusioned with British rule, they decided something has to happen. And so they came together. And it was at that First Continental Congress that Patrick Henry told those delegates that, you know what, it's time for us to stop thinking as people from individual colonies and start thinking as Americans, united, together. Not separately, not independently, not one for one colony and another for another, but together as Americans. That's what he challenged those people to think. And then it was on July 2nd, 1776, when the Declaration of Independence began to be drafted that Benjamin Franklin told the various signers of that declaration, we need to all hang together, or most assuredly, we'll all hang separately, he said. And certainly he was right. And so they talked about unity. They talked about being united. And even Thomas Jefferson, the author of the Declaration of Independence, wrote at the top the United States of America. And it was only in being united toward that common goal of independence and freedom that they were able to succeed. And as Americans, of course, we are united on things like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. We know those words, and those are our values as a country. And it's because of that unity, being unified over things like that, no matter what divides us, being unified over those types of things, it's because of that, that over the past 200-plus years, the world has witnessed the greatest demonstration of representative democracy that the, the world has ever seen, that man has ever known. It's because of that unity that began so long ago and still continues today that we believe in those values. We are united on those things. And this morning, though, I'm not here to talk about America. A lot of times, and I'm sure across pulpits, uh, across our country this morning, maybe if you're wanting a message like that, and go online or grab a CD copy. There'll be lots of preachers and so on that will talk about what's wrong with America, what we need to do to fix it. And certainly, I'm no fool. I know there's a lot wrong with America. But I don't want to talk about America this morning. I, I, I don't want to talk about the things that are wrong with our country. And I don't want to talk about how we need to be better citizens and so on. And I think largely because in our congregation we have great citizens. I really believe that. I think in our town we have great citizens. I went to the parade yesterday. That was fun. It was fun just to watch it. Maybe some of you went there and you saw the 500 tractors that came through. You know, it was just, just when will they ever end? You know, but hey. I had a tractor, I'd ride in the parade too, you know, so 
But you know what? What a, what a display of patriotism! You know, just in our in our small town, that we get to see that. And we have so many veterans and families of veterans and folks who fought in different wars and served our country. And so, I, I really don't think that a, that a lesson this morning on on citizenship is really necessary. I think you get it. I think you understand the importance of being involved in your community in a civic sense, being involved in voting and, and getting involved as best you can in, in promoting solid values within our community. I think you get that. And so I want to talk this morning about something that is, I think, transcendent, far beyond the importance of unity in our country. And I want to talk this morning about the unity of us as Christians. What is it that unifies us? Though I'm thankful to live in America, this message is not about our great country. It's about us. If you are a born-again believer, someone who has placed your trust in Jesus Christ and in Him alone for salvation, and I want you to listen closely this morning. If you're not a person who's given your life completely to Jesus Christ, this message is also for you, and I hope to show you how. On the back of your bulletin, I want you to, to do me a favor real quick. We're going to pause for about 30 seconds. And during those 30 seconds, I, I, you may not be a note-taker, and that's fine. I just want, you're going to make a list of something. I want you to think, before we get into the Scripture, I want you to think about this coming week, and I want you to make a list somewhere on the back of your bulletin of the people that you will encounter. And they probably come to your mind. And maybe you go to work, and maybe you are taking summer class, or whatever it may be. I don't know. Maybe you're going to the grocery store, and you're coming to church, or whatever it may be. So just make a list. And, and I would say quickly, as quickly as you can, just get up to about ten people. Maybe it's family, maybe it's friends, coworkers, and so on. I'm going to pause. I want you to write them down. I'm not going to ask you to share them. I'm not going to ask you to stand up and talk about them or anything like that. But just write those names down as quickly as you can. Think about it. All right, I'll pause you there. I'm sure you have many more names. You could probably fill up the back of that bulletin. Many of you could. With names of people. How many of you got up to 10 real quick? Anybody get 10 or more names? How many of you, even more than that, 15 or so? Anybody get, yeah, absolutely. Get a few folks. You can just write them down real fast. How many of you included the family member? Friend? Coworker? Walmart greeter? Anybody? No? Your crazy neighbor? Anybody? Anybody? Yeah, absolutely. Just write that's their title, crazy neighbor, you know. Person who cuts you off in traffic later on, you know, when you go, you write that person down. Yeah, I just want you to think about as we move through this message of those people that are on your list and more that I hope will come to mind. And you may be a person who encounters lots and lots of people. Maybe you're in a job or a position where your job is really about people. And that's what you do. You just talk to people all day long, or you interact with them all day long. And that you're sort of in that business. And you have other things, of course, that you do, but that, that may be the focus. And you could, you know, you you could just write and write and write the names of people. Others, you say, well, you know, I, I really I kind of work in a job where I work for myself. I'm not really around that many people. But I guarantee that if you'll open your eyes and think, you can fill that paper up. With folks that you'll encounter this week, friends, family, Walmart readers, and so on, you'll, you'll encounter them. Next time you walk into Walmart, you'll be thinking about this sermon. You'll encounter people this week. 
no matter what age you are, you may say, well, listen, I'm, I'm older, I'm retired, I, I don't really talk to that many people. I mean, there are days when I just kind of hang around the house and work in the yard and do some things like that. I guarantee you that there are at least 10 people this week that you'll encounter and talk to and you'll have an interaction with, no matter how young or how old or wherever in between you may be. And so I want you just to kind of hang on to your list and turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians is over in the New Testament. If you brought a Bible this morning, I'd really like for you to go there with us. If you're not familiar with the Bible, and, and I, I hope and pray, I really do, that we have folks who are coming and maybe you are interested in God for the very first time. And you're just learning about spiritual things. And you're learning about who Jesus is. I hope that we have folks that are here. Because if not, we're not doing our job, let's be honest. So if you're not familiar with the Bible, don't let that stop you. You just go to the table of contents in the very beginning. And you'll see the Old and New Testament divided, and you'll see the book of 1 Corinthians. may have a one or a Roman numeral one next to it. Then you'll see the book of 2 Corinthians right after it. I want you to turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And this is a letter that Paul wrote to a group of people in a town called Corinth, and that's why they're called the Corinthians. And so I believe from, from this particular chapter, in this particular letter, we get both by instruction and by implication what unites us as believers and what we should be focused on. I want you to read along with me. You'll see the words on the screen if you have a different translation. Maybe that will help you. But let's look and begin reading in verse 1 of chapter 5. For we know that if our earthly house, a tent, he's talking about the, the human body, is destroyed, we have a building from God, a new body, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And so let, let's stop there for just a second. Understand, Paul is setting up, look, Here's, here's sort of what's going to happen to us as believers in Jesus Christ when we pass from this world into the next. So kind of have that in your mind. This is what he's talking about. This is, the, in general, what he's saying. And, in fact, we groan in this one. You ever you've been there? Some of you climbed the stairs this morning. Oh, you just, yeah. So you know that. Longing to put our house, put on our house from heaven, or that body from heaven. Since we are clothed, we will not be found naked. So we'll be transformed. We'll, we'll, we'll be granted a new body. Indeed, we who are in this tent grown, burdened as we are, because we do not want to be unclothed, but clothed, so that mortality may be swallowed up by life. And the one who prepared us for this very thing is God, who gave us the Spirit as a down payment. So Paul basically has set the scene, is telling the folks, look, one day, you, you, you who are tired of this old life, this life here on earth, even this old body that just gets broken down and frustrated, it's full of sin and all that, one day, it's all going to be changed. One day, if you place your trust in Jesus Christ, you'll be forever in heaven with Jesus. But not only that, you'll be transformed. You'll have a glorified body that won't break down, that won't groan anymore, that won't fall, that won't get hurt, that won't you know, need Advil. You know, all hours of the day won't need any of that stuff. You praise God, right? And so, so we'll be in a brand new body and we'll be with Jesus. Therefore, verse 6, though we are always confident and know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. Talking about being here on earth instead of in heaven. For we walk by faith and not by sight. Yet we are confident and satisfied to be out of the body and at home with the Lord. He's saying, look, I, I, even though we're stuck here, even though this life gives us problems, we still hope for that one day when we'll be out of this body and we'll be glorified and with Jesus Christ. And then verse 9, Therefore, whether we are at home or away, whether we're here in honor or in heaven, we make it our aim to be pleasing to Him. 
For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each may be repaid for what he has done in the body, whether good or bad. Talking about believers there, that one day we'll stand before Jesus, and the good things that we have done as believers in Jesus Christ will last. The things that we have done that do not pass his standard as believers will be burned up. And then verse 11, knowing then the fear of the Lord, we persuade people. We are completely open before God, and I hope we are completely open to your consciences as well. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to be proud of us, so that you may have a reply for those who take pride in the outward appearance rather than in the heart. For we have our, for if we are out of our mind, it is for God. If we have a sound mind, it is for you. For Christ's love compels us. Since we have reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. And he died for all, so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them and was raised. Verse 16. From now on, then, we do not know anyone in a purely human way, even if we have known Christ in a purely human way, yet now we no longer know him like that. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Old things have passed away, and look, new things have come. Now, everything is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. And he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Certain that God is appealing through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that we might become the righteousness of God in him. What an incredible chapter. What an incredible part of this letter to give us an insight into so many different things. And yet I think these are the things that we'll see, both by instruction and implication, that unite us as believers. What is it that we are united on, or that we should be united on? I will say this, that many churches, many Christians are united on things other than what we'll talk about this morning. In all honesty, there are churches and there are people in every church who would say that these things are important, yes, but. They would say that I believe that, yes, but they don't live as if they do. And so I hope this morning to guide us and challenge us and inspire us toward being unified as both individual believers and collectively as Elm Grove Baptist Church on these simple things. We are united first by a message. And the message is very simple. It is this. People need Jesus. You may have already guessed that fill in the blank. Some of you are good at that. You've already guessed it. Oh, I got it right. Absolutely. People need Jesus. You know, that's the simple message of the New Testament, the simple message of Jesus Christ, the simple message of the cross and of the resurrection. And that's our simple message, is that people need Jesus. Why is that? I think that's by implication that Paul is saying, look, people need Jesus. And he talks about it. And he gives us, I think, some principles in here that we can look at. And maybe you'd like to write these down. They won't be on the screen. But I think yeah, these are some things we pull from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And one principle under that particular heading is this. That why do people need Jesus? Well, everybody spends eternity somewhere. Everybody spends eternity somewhere. In the first ten verses, what does he talk about? The hope that we have that one day as believers in Jesus Christ, we will go where? To heaven. That, that we'll leave this old life behind, that the truth of Scripture will be realized when we pass from this life into the next. 
Some of you have had family members who have recently passed away. And though it was a sad time, you know, and it was probably said at their funeral, if they were a believer in Jesus Christ, listen, they are more alive now than they've ever been. They are dancing and celebrating. They would not want to come back to this old life for anything. And so we know that based on what Paul says, we have that hope that as believers in Jesus Christ, that one day we'll leave this old groaning body behind. We'll be transformed and we'll be forever with Jesus for all eternity. So Paul gives us very clear instruction that those who believe in Jesus will spend eternity in heaven. But he also, by implication, teaches that everybody spends eternity somewhere. Look back at your list. Look at those people on that list again. Every one of those names represents not just a faceless person, but a soul that will spend eternity somewhere. Some, maybe most, maybe on some lists all, but I doubt it, will spend eternity in heaven, transformed, as Paul said, glorified in a new body to be with Jesus forever because they have placed their faith in him alone. Some, maybe most, and sometimes all of the people on your list will not spend eternity in heaven, but they'll spend it in hell. We don't like to talk about it very often because it's not something that we see as a justifiable action by a loving God. How could a loving God send anyone to hell? You realize God doesn't send anybody to hell? That our unbelief in His Son, Jesus Christ, sends us to hell? And God could not be a God of love if He were not also a God of justice, which means that He will, as He loves, also enforce the rules and that even one sin, which we can all claim that we've committed this morning, just one sin is such an offense to the holiness of God that we are deserving of eternal separation from Him. The Bible speaks of a literal heaven and a literal hell. Not in figurative terms, not in some out there kind of way. It talks about that this will really happen. Everybody spends eternity somewhere, and it's going to be one or the other. And that is one of the principles Paul gives us under this message that people need Jesus. Why? Because they're going to spend eternity somewhere. The second principle I think Paul gives us is found in verse 14. For Christ's love compels us since we have reached this conclusion. If one died for what? All. Then all died. Well, the, the principle under here, people need Jesus. Why? Because everybody spends eternity somewhere. And secondly, because everybody you encounter is someone Jesus died for. Look back at your list. I told you to keep it handy because we're going to refer to it several times. Every person on that list, even that guy who's your crazy neighbor who gets on your nerves, shooting fireworks off at 1 o'clock in the morning while you're trying to go to sleep. Somebody did that last night, didn't you? You're somebody's crazy neighbor. You realize that? Okay. Even that person who, when you leave church this morning and you're on your way out to eat, you're just trying to smile and be nice because you just went to church. That person who cuts you off in traffic, the Walmart greeter, your friends, your neighbors, your relatives, people you care deeply about, the people you hate, they're all somebody Jesus died for. It says one died for all. So every person you encounter, and this ought to change the way you look at people. It really ought to. 
Boy, what if we kept this principle in mind every time we encountered somebody? That's somebody Jesus died for. Somebody Jesus died for. We think, well, I don't know about that guy. You know, maybe, maybe this man, I don't you know, maybe his wife. You know, she's sweet. Not that guy, you know. Every person, everybody that you encounter is someone that Jesus died for. Not just the ones we like. Not just the ones we prefer. But everybody that you encounter. People need Jesus because they'll spend eternity somewhere. Because Jesus died for them. And also because hell awaits those who reject Jesus. As I said, it's not God who sends people to hell. It's our rejection of Jesus Christ through our unbelief. It dooms us to an eternal hell. Jesus is the only way for reconciliation between us and God. He's the only way to gain eternal life in heaven. That's it. It's implied here in the Scripture when he says, in Christ, well, we are a new creation, which implies that apart from Christ, we're still dead and old in our sins. We've not been made new. So by implication, he teaches that. He also says that in Christ comes God's reconciliation, his offer to make things right, his way to make us savable. And in Christ, we receive that. In Christ, we are made right with God, but only through him. And so by implication, if we're not in Christ, then we are on the other side. The Bible says an enemy of God. He says that Jesus became sin and gave us his righteousness. He uses accounting terms. He made a transaction, withdrew our sin from our account, placed his righteousness in our account, and filled it up. And so now when Jesus, when God looks into our account, he sees the righteousness of Jesus instead of our sin. And that transaction only comes through faith alone. It's the only way we can have that deposited into our account. And so by implication, apart from Jesus Christ, we don't have his righteousness put into our account, and we still have it filled up with only sin, and we need to be forgiven. And so by implication, hell awaits those who reject Jesus. They'll spend eternity somewhere, either going to be in heaven or in hell. Jesus died for one and all, and if they reject him, if you reject him, then hell awaits. It's implied here, it's plainly stated elsewhere, John 14, 6, Jesus himself says, look, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life. And then he puts on this, this little part that is so, so incredible. He says, no one. He doesn't say, well... There's some exceptions to this clause, and I'll get to those later on in, in the end of chapter 14. He doesn't say that. He says, no one comes to God except through me. What does that imply? There is one way to get to God. In fact, it doesn't even apply it. Imply it. It just teaches it directly. There is one way, and that is only through Jesus Christ. Acts 4, verse 12 says that there's only one name by which we must be saved. That's it. And that is the name of Jesus Christ. And so... People need Jesus because everybody spends eternity somewhere. Because every person you encounter is someone Jesus died for and because hell awaits those who reject Jesus. I honestly believe that many churches, many Christians, have forgotten. They've ignored, they've let slip the simple message that people need Jesus. Many say they believe it but fail to live as though it's true. What a shame. Maybe you've fallen into that trap. I know I have. <laughs> there have been so many times in my life when I just, you know, I think, well, hey, I know people need Jesus, and then I forget that with my Christian.
crazy neighbor and the Walmart greeter and the person who cuts me off in traffic and my friends and all of that. I just forget it. But I hope we're reminded today. And so the questions then become, do you really believe that people need Jesus? I mean, honestly, I don't say that as a rhetorical question. Do you really believe it? To the individual here this morning, not just throwing it out there, do you really believe it? Do you really believe that they'll spend eternity somewhere? Or is that just a fairy tale to you? If you believe it, you'll live it out. If you believe it, it'll affect the way you treat people. It'll affect the way you view them. Do you really believe that every person you encounter is someone Jesus died for? That'll change you. You put that in the front of your mind, each and every conversation, each and every encounter, and it'll change you, guaranteed. Do you really believe that? Are we concerned about those who are far from God, or do we just kind of turn up our nose at them? As a church, do we operate that way? Are we open? Are we pursuing those kinds of people who are far from God? Or are we just content maybe to attend and talk back and forth and fellowship and sing and preach and and go home as if none of this stuff is really true, as if no one else really exists? I hope, folks, that we answer those questions not in, oh, yeah, we believe it, but in the way that we act, the way that we live. If we are to be biblical Christians, if we are to be a biblical church, these are the questions we must answer. And these are the principles we must live by. People need Jesus. That's what unites us, the message. But also what unites us is a mission. And it's this, get people to Jesus by taking Jesus to people. Get people to Jesus by taking Jesus to people. Paul, both through his demonstration and his direct instruction, gives us an idea on how to make that happen. How do you get people to Jesus by taking Jesus to people? That's the mission. That's what Jesus did himself. He came to earth. He left heaven, eternal glory, and came here to earth to live among us sinful people, become become our sin on our behalf, hang on a cross publicly, die, and be raised again. He brought himself to us. He took himself to us so that we might be able to get to him. That's his mission. It ought to be our mission. How do you make that happen? Verses 11 to 13 talk about the fact that we must persuade them. What does he say? Knowing in the fear of the Lord that all this stuff is true, we persuade people. Well, so we're not just counting on folks to get it. We're doing all we can to persuade them, to influence them. How do you do that? By how you live, by what you say. Paul goes on to talk about we've lived openly before you. You live with integrity. Look at your list again. How many of those folks can honestly say that you're a person of integrity? Maybe a lot of them. Well, I hope so. <laughs> That'd be great. But I tell you what, it's convicting, I'm sure, to look and say, well, you know, I bet if my coworkers were really honest, they, they, they have to admit that I'm a good person, but they don't see any great difference in me and them. Because maybe I don't live with the integrity that I should. What would your husband, your wife say? Your children, your parents. Have you lived openly? Have you lived with, with one dimension in mind? And that is, I am a believer in Jesus Christ, period. I, I'm not someone who happens to be a believer in Jesus Christ, but when I go to work, I sort of turn that off or put it on the shelf. Well, this is who I am. This is it. 
salt-consuming. And so I'm a believer in Jesus Christ who happens to work there, who happens to shop there, who happens to be married to, who happens to be related to, who happens to live close to. I'm a believer in Jesus Christ. That consumes it, who happens to do all these other things. Is that the way you live? Paul says he lived with one dimension, all out for the Lord. He says, if we are out of our mind, it is for God. I've just lost my mind in the presence of the Lord. I've given myself totally to Him, 100%. He says, if we have a sound mind, it's for you. I don't want you thinking I'm nuts and crazy, so you know what? I'm going to make this understandable to you. He says, we persuade people by how we live, by what we say. He also says, we must love people. Verse 14, for Christ's love compels us. Since we've reached this conclusion, if one died for all, then all died. We're compelled by the love of Christ, which was full of sacrifice and humility and action and empathy. And it was constant. And not only was it full of action, but it acted first. What does the Bible say? We love because he first loved us. His love is not in response to us. His love is even in the face of our hatred toward him and our sin against him. We must love them. We want to imitate Jesus. We must love those who are lost, who are dying spiritually, who will spend eternity in hell. And we must love in direct reflection to the love of Jesus Christ. Verse 15 implies that we must no longer live for ourselves. And he, he died for all so that those who live what should no longer live for themselves. Makes it pretty clear. I kind of like it when the Bible just comes right out and says it. You know, it makes my job as a preacher pretty easy. I don't have to convince you that you should no longer live for yourself because Paul said it. And the Holy Spirit inspired him to write those words. But who for the one who died for them and was raised. We no longer live for ourselves. As great a country as we have, this is one of the problems in our country. I'm not talking about America today, so understand I'm not going to rail against it, but it trickles over into our lives as Christians, doesn't it? Well, how easy is it just to live for yourself? And I think that's not just in America. That's just being human, I'm sure. But how easy is it to only live for yourself? Paul says those who have been redeemed by Jesus Christ, been purchased, been given over to him, no longer live for themselves, but for the one who died for them. And that really has major implications for our lives. Because Jesus didn't live a comfortable life. He didn't live a life that, that folks were okay all the time with what he did and what he said. He, he sort of said it how it was. He did it in a loving way. But he was undeterred. He, he did not in any way sacrifice his convictions. His disciples later on all were martyred. They lived for the one who died for them, not for themselves. Verse 16 says that we must know them, but not in human terms, not based on what they look like or what they say or what they do, but on spiritual terms. We've got to see through God's eyes the people in our lives. Those folks on your list need you to see them as God sees them. And that's not looking at the outside. What does it say from cover to cover in the Bible? That God doesn't look at the outside. He looks where? At the inside of the heart. And so Paul says we don't see people anymore based on what they look like, what they say, what they do. We see them for who they really are. This goes back to that first principle. They're going to spend eternity somewhere. How many times do you forget? How many times do I forget 
to look at people through God's eyes. Boy, it's so easy to focus on the external because really, that's all our physical eyes can see. We have to ask God for the wisdom and discernment and the, the, the absolute determination to say, God, I'm going to view people as you view them. Who are folks that are bound for eternity. Somebody Jesus died for. Somebody that apart from Jesus will spend eternity in hell. He says we have to know them. Know why they are the way they are. Those folks on your list, probably not all of them go to church. Probably not all of them are born again believers in Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Do you you know them on that level? No, I, I hate to ask. That's the most important question you can ask them. Why is it that you've turned your back on the Lord? I just want to know. Why do we ask those types of questions? Why do we investigate? So we can figure out a way to persuade them, figure out a way to reach them, figure out what makes them tick, and find out some way, somehow, to get involved in their lives in such a way that maybe they'll see the light of Jesus Christ. That's why we do that. Not so we can be nosy, not so we can talk about them, but because we see them in a spiritual way. And that's what consumes us. And then Paul also gives us the concept that we must recognize our role. Verse 20, he says, we are ambassadors for Christ. That's our role. We are his missionaries sent by him, his representatives. And so as an ambassador, we must know our stuff. We have to know the gospel. And apart from Jesus Christ, there is no salvation. It's not in being a good person and hoping that outweighs the bad. Because apart from Jesus Christ, the Bible says it's all bad. It doesn't even count. So we must know our stuff. We must go to those that God has given us. Those people on your list, those if any are far from God, that's who God has given you. That's who you encounter. That's your mission field. And I don't say that in a pithy, cliche sort of way. You are God's missionary to those people. We as a church are God's missionary to Murray and Callaway County. And if we don't believe that and don't operate by it, as, as sensibly as I can put it, let's close the doors. And boy, I hope we do. As a church, as individuals, and I hope you understand my heart. Because if not, what are we? Are we a church anymore? No. Are we God's missionaries anymore? No. Well, let's do that. Let's every one of us. Let's get on board with that sort of mission. Recognizing our role. Let's learn to navigate the world that we're in so that we can reach it, so that we can live with integrity, so that we can be unstained by the world, James says, but we can reach it in the process. Let's study our community and figure out what can we do? How can we be missionaries? How can we at Elm Grove Baptist Church really do what God has called us to do for Murray and Callaway County? How can we do it? We're going to have to do our homework. We're going to have to figure it out. It's going to be exciting. I'm not sure we totally know yet. Some of you have a good idea, though. Some of you are already on that path. I'm thankful. I'm thankful for that. I think Paul ultimately sort of comes around to this particular principle. In that in our mission for Jesus Christ, we must have an outward focus. We must have an outward focus. And this is the calling on the life of every Christian. Not just those who you think, well, they're really good at that. Every Christian. This is the calling on the life of every church, not just those who seem to sort of move forward at a rapid pace or, or they, they've 
planted a new church in a new location. No, for every single church. That includes us as individuals and us as a church. This is our calling. To have that outward focus. To realize it's not about us or our preferences or anything like that, but about taking the message of Jesus Christ to those who need him. That's it. It's the only reason we exist. It's the reason the church was established. Do you know what happened in Matthew chapter 28, right before Jesus ascended? What did he tell him? Go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded. He said, what's the first word he used in there? Go. Outward focus. Acts chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus says, you will be my witnesses both here and all around the world. Outward focus. You realize that the disciples, listen, before we hold them up as these incredible models that we should just pattern our lives after, though they are great examples for us, let's understand that in Acts chapter 8, you know what had to happen for them to actually turn their focus outward? They had to be persecuted. You know, they allowed that guy did. Why? Because they hadn't gotten it. They hadn't figured it out, that this is not about them. We have the same tendency just like they did. And so before the Lord has to kind of kick us a little bit, as individuals, as churches, as, as people in Murray and Callaway County, wherever you may call your home church, let's go ahead and do what he asked us to do and commanded us to do in the first place. And that's the display and to have that outward focus. And so I ask you, who is God calling you to reach? Maybe it's somebody on that list. Who's God calling you to reach? I'll tell you who's on my heart. First day baseball team. That's who's on my heart. Why? Well, I realize that God didn't allow me to play baseball at Murray State just so my parents could get a break on tuition. That was a great blessing for them. But that's not the only reason. You with me? God didn't bring me back to Murray, Kentucky for no reason. And to have my path intersect with those guys for no reason. That's just on my heart. Does that mean I'm going to? Talk to them at the exclusion of everybody else. Oh, that's just stupid. That doesn't even make sense. That's not what I'm saying. That's just on my heart. Who's God called you to reach? Maybe it's somebody that you work with. Maybe it's a group of people. I don't know. But I guarantee you it's somebody. God hasn't called you out of darkness to live in light only for yourself. Who's God called you to reach? Who's he given you? I almost put him in your hand. Put her right in your hand. Who is it? Who's God called us to reach? As a church. You know, we did our trunk or treat last year. We did our Easter egg hunt. We did vacation Bible school. We had all kinds of people that I think the Lord opened our eyes. Here's who I could give you. Here are the people. Here they are. They're out there. Who's God called us to reach? God's not done reaching people, and I pray that we're not done either. And I'm so thankful for many of you in this congregation, and even here this morning, though some obviously are traveling out of town, but so many of you say, you know what, I'm not done either. <laughs> I'm done reaching people. Let's see what God can do. And God has that outward focus, and I pray that we will accentuate that, develop that, talk about it, make that our mindset. How can we make that happen? Well, we pray. <laughs> it's not going to happen unless we're praying. That God would change us. It would get us out of our old habits. I have the same habits you do. That inward focus. Sometimes that laziness. Well, I tell you what, that drives me nuts when I see laziness. Christian laziness in myself. I'm not talking about you. I'm talking about me. 
I have those same things. I have to pray myself out of that. God, break my heart. Change me. Turn me around. Help me to see people the way you do. And you look at your list and you say, I want to figure out a way to reach that person. It may take a year. It may take two years. It may take the rest of your life. I don't have any idea. It may take next week. I'm going to figure out a way to do it. Maybe we'd figure out as a church, how can we be strategic and creative in reaching the people in Murray and Callaway County? Maybe this week you would serve someone in a very tangible way. Maybe that crazy neighbor, you help him pick up all the fireworks, you know, rappers, and he's just going to shoot off tonight and keep you awake. I don't know. Maybe we'd serve him in some particular way with nothing expected in return. Maybe you'd tell somebody this week about the hope that you found, the life that you found in Jesus Christ. Maybe somebody who's going through a hard time. Maybe you display that lifestyle that just reflects authentic Christianity. Look, I'm one-dimensional. Maybe you just live in that way. But Jesus consumes me. Maybe you become accountable to somebody on these things. You say, look, I want to be the type of person who's got an outward focus, who's reaching to people. And so let's talk about it each week. We'll see how we did. We'll see how we live one-dimensional. We'll see if we talk to anybody. We'll see if we invite anybody and so on. So this happens, of course, individually and as a church. You may not feel it this morning, but we are obviously in the peak of our church season, so to speak. Sometimes uh, you feel it, I'm sure. We're, we're getting close on being out of space. We need wisdom. We need to know what to do. God, what should we do? I don't know. I don't have any idea. God knows. Let's pray. Let's pray to ask God, Lord, how, what, what should we do? We, we want to, to see our, our children reach for the Lord. God, what should we do? Realize that they're over there right now, and we, we may see on certain Sundays, all oh, look at all those kids. But they feel it over there. They, they feel it, and they, they're in a room with 10 kids that, that, that they, they feel it a little bit. Maybe you've been there. Some of you nodding your head, you, you have no idea. We need wisdom. We need to pray and ask God, what should we do? How, what, what, what should we be thinking about? We need to be sure that we accentuate what is already here and that we develop even more an outward focus. It's the mission of Jesus. It ought to be our mission as well. And so questions in closing, I suppose, are, do you believe the message? The people, people need Jesus. And do we live the mission? Are we consistently, day in and day out, week in and week out, getting people to Jesus by taking Jesus to people? Are we truly representing him as his ambassadors? So maybe you just start today at lunch. Now, that waitress or waiter, whomever it is, you figure out some way to have an outward focus toward that person. Or maybe at Freedom Fest later on, the activities that are going on, just some way to have an outward focus. Maybe you start thinking about that. Maybe you start developing that mindset. Maybe this week at work or in your next conversation, whatever it may be, Jesus unites us with his message of hope and forgiveness and with his mission and with the call to both proclaim that message and to live out the mission. It's for each and every one of us. And it's a great message. And it's a great mission. And there is nothing like seeing that message received by people and seeing that mission accomplish its goals of getting people to Jesus. 
As I told you, if you're a person here this morning and you are a born-again, sold-out believer in Jesus Christ, this message is for you. Because there are folks on your list, folks that you thought of, folks that you interact with, that need Jesus. And your mission, my mission, and our mission is to get those people to Jesus by taking Jesus to them. I also told you if you're a person who you're not sure about where you stand with Jesus Christ, maybe you've rejected him, maybe you said, I don't want anything to do with him. This message is for you. Why? Because you need Jesus. That's his message. He said he gave us the, the ministry of reconciliation. And they said to people, be reconciled to God. Get right with God. Why? Because you will spend eternity somewhere. You'll spend eternity somewhere. Not a scary thing. It's an exciting thing if you know Jesus. You'll spend eternity somewhere. And Jesus died for you. Not just for me. Not just for the folks who sit over here, sit over here, somebody in the back. Not, not just for, for you. Died for you. So that you wouldn't have to die for all eternity apart from heaven and hell. But if you reject him, hell awaits. If you reject him, you'll never experience it. Abundant life, life to the fullest, Jesus said in John chapter 10. Here on earth, you'll never experience that. And one day, you'll wish, why, why did I listen? Why did I wait? Don't put it off. Receive that message that Jesus loves you, that he is the only way for salvation. And pray this morning and ask him to come into your life. Give your life to him. Do it now. Why don't you bow your head with me and let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the message. The people need Jesus. Lord, may that be front and center in every encounter that we have. In every person that we talk to and every situation we face, help us to remember that people need Jesus. For the folks on our list, for the folks who we thought of, God, remind us. Lord, help us to live out your mission to get people to Jesus by taking Jesus to people. Or may those things, that message, that mission be what unite us. Lord, I'm thankful for so many who already have that outward focus, who desperately want to see themselves in this church used in a mighty way by you. Lord, I pray you impress that even more so on them and also on all of us. That is our mission. And Lord, may we stand back and just give you all the credit and glory because we know that's only something that you can do. For those, Lord, who are far from you this morning who need to understand and receive that message of hope, I pray that they do that, that they not wait, that they simply ask you for forgiveness and ask you to come into their life and to save them. We thank you. We thank you, Jesus, that you didn't keep an inward focus, but you came to earth. And you died for sinful people so that we might be saved. We pray in Jesus' name.